Do you love Austin's parks and trails? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Austin Parks Cast by Austin Parks Foundation. Meet me outside. Meet me outside, my dear. I want to be. Hey y'all, thanks so much for tuning in. In our final episode of season one, we're talking about something near and dear to everyone at Austin Parks Foundation, volunteerism. Volunteer projects are critical to the health of our city's park system. Coordinated efforts between park stewards and city staff can lead to incredible positive outcomes in our city's outdoor spaces. We're thrilled to have Barry Rivera, our volunteer manager at APF, facilitate this discussion. We'd also like to thank the following guests. Jerry Levinson and David Todd, veteran park stewards and volunteers for APF. Patrick Shaken from the City of Austin Park Ranger Program, as well as James Duff from the City of Austin Wildlife Division. Volunteer events are a core part of what we do at Austin Parks Foundation. In the midst of COVID-19, in-person volunteer events have been on pause as parks, trails, and green spaces are seeing unprecedented use. A phrase we like to use is overloved. As restrictions ease, we hope to get you back out in the parks as soon as possible. So stay tuned to our website at austinparks.org backslash volunteer. We're excited for you to hear from our guests on the importance of volunteering, so I won't keep you any longer. I'll hand it off to Kathleen to get us started. Ready to dive in? Hello, welcome to the Austin Parks Summit Series. Um, I'm Kathleen Barron with the Austin Parks Foundation. Um, this is a part of a series we've been doing for the last several months when we brought our uh, summit online for the first time. Um, today, uh, we have uh, um, our session is going to be focused on volunteerism, which is um, very timely as we're finally, after the last several months, able to start uh, volunteering in the parks again. Uh, it's titled Savvy Stewardship, Volunteerism as Critical Parks Care, and we're really excited for all the uh, panelists that we have today. Our host um, for this session is Barry Rivera, who's our volunteer manager. Um, and he's going to be um, talking with all the panelists, asking questions. Unfortunately, today we weren't able to do the live stream. And so we won't be able to take questions um, from our audience. This is going to be pre-recorded and posted online. Um, but if folks have questions, you can always email Kathleen at austinparks.org um, and I'll make sure they get to the right place. All right, Barry, I'm switching over to you. All right. Well, welcome everybody. Um, thank you all for joining in on this summit session. Like Kathleen mentioned, my name is Barry Rivera. And I am the volunteer manager here at Austin Parks Foundation. Um, today is a, a special day, like Kathleen mentioned, we're finally able to get volunteerism back but it's also my dad's birthday so if you're watching this later dad happy birthday i love you uh, it's also hobbit day it's frodo and bilbo's birthday y'all didn't know that uh if you haven't done so already i'd really encourage y'all to go back and watch our previous summit sessions as well they um are Posted on our website, the awesomeparks.org, and um, under the uh, there's a whole summit sessions page. But we really feel like each session represents a core piece of our mission 
And our mission is to partner with PAR to uplift our city's parks, support the local stewards of those parks, and enhance a park user's experience. So when, when all these summit sessions are kind of viewed comprehensively, um, it works to support the message of, of the other sessions each session. Um, that being said, volunteerism really is a core tenet of our organization. And we really believe that uh, through the work of dedicated volunteers, we can um, empower communities to create change in parks and, and uh, really see the day when our parks are at a level that we all desire, regardless of what part of town you live in or the size of your park. And um, Balan, which we'll be talking about today, is, is a place where that you know, has, has already happened. And so uh, without further ado, we'll, we'll get into what we're um, talking about today. And, and that's focusing here on some amazing people that have taken that notion to heart and worked extremely hard to see um, just a, an incredible impact through their work at Blonde Creek Nature Preserve which is um, one of our city's nature preserves, which is, falls under the Parks and Recreation umbrella. It's located in South Austin near St. Ed's University. A really cool place um, and much cooler now because of the hard work of, of these folks right here. Uh, so without further ado, I'd like to introduce our panelists. We have uh, Patrick Chaikin, Park Ranger Supervisor. We have uh, Jerry Levinson and David Todd there long-time super volunteers and um, really kind of do the, the driving forces behind a lot of the work that's happened at Blunt. And then we have James Duff from Austin, uh, from AFD in the wildfire division. And so what's cool about this panel and what's cool about Blunt is that it was really a combination of all these entities and, you know, several more too, working together to create change. And we're really excited to have y'all here and, and hear each of your perspective about um, you know, all that's happened at one. So Patrick, I'd like to start with you. Um, I'd love if you could uh, share a little bit about, you know, the work done at Blunt through PARD's perspective and, um, and maybe the evolution of the city's approach to land management, specifically in the preserves. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Blunt is kind of a particularly unique location. Uh, management there has been incredibly active for decades at this point. Uh, so much of it relied on the leadership of Rene Barrera, who uh, passed a year ago or a little more. And really all the volunteers and the super volunteers and the community that surrounds it still carries a lot of his vision forward. And Blunt is one of the best examples of that. Uh, so really it's kind of just been a culmination of a lot of different efforts, ma making sure the community is involved, because I think most of these lands, the resources aren't really available uh, without community involvement. And the type of work that we try to accomplish uh, really couldn't be done sustainably without uh, the massive input of not only the super volunteers who are here today, but also just the community that comes out, whether it be the high school students that are adjacent to it or the neighborhood folks that come out for the monthly work days or sometimes it's uh, corporate efforts that different um, groups come through through APF and other organizations. So it's really been just a massive culmination of different things to kind of progress uh, the type of land management we wanted to see at that particular preserve. That's awesome. Yeah, and Renee, um, recently had a preserve named after him, right, Patrick? 
He did. Yeah. So uh, the Indian Grass Wildlife Sanctuary was officially renamed uh, Louis Rene Barrera Indian Grass Wildlife Sanctuary last year uh, through a council resolution and through a lot of hard work and dedication by a lot of his friends and colleagues and volunteers and Austin Parks Foundation and others. Uh, so that his impact was just immense. And the work days that we did alongside of those, uh, the renaming ceremonies, it just showed the reach that Renee had uh, and his impact because just so hundreds of people were in attendance. It was volunteer work spread across the entire preserve system. Uh, a lot of partner organizations who he impacted, uh, like the fire department and TXCC and just countless others. Uh, so it just really goes to show what an enormous community uh, surrounds being able to do this type of restoration work. And Renee was the focal point of all of that. Yeah, that's really cool. I don't know if I've ever heard so much about one person that I've never met um, besides Renee or maybe Michael Jordan. But of those two, um, yeah, I was re I'm, I'm, it's really cool to, I've never, never actually met him. I kind of just, just missed that. But um, really, I think, like you said, the work lives on through y'all. It's been cool to hear about all that he did with, with so little and uh, excited that that vision can move forward. It's cool. Uh, Jerry and David, I was wondering if y'all could touch on, um, how you guys got involved with one specifically and uh, kind of some of the challenges you faced, you know, specifically like what the state of the preserve is when you got there and then what processes you Im implemented to, to overcome those challenges and how volunteers have helped as well as the partnership with, um, with Renee and the Rangers and PARD in, in general. Jerry. Yeah, I, uh, oh, go ahead, David. No, 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 no. You, you go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, the first time that Renee, I had been working with Renee as, as a normal volunteer, which, which means once a month or so. And uh, so he asked me to come out and help him guide a group from Dell at the Blunt Creek Nature Preserve. And compared to other places that I had been, I had never seen a land so overtaken with invasive Ligustman trees. And it was obvious that uh, Blunt Creek needed an awful lot of help. So uh, what was it, 2010, I think, is when I started uh, at, at Blunt Creek, not as a full-time job, but uh, several days a week, several hours a day. And uh, we could not have accomplished what we did without help from the Parks Department uh, because we took out, and I'm not kidding about this, hundreds of tons of lagustrum trees that went to uh, uh, Hornsby Bend for mulching and turning into dirt. Well, we started out doing that uh, with Renee's 16-foot trailer, and uh, that was not very efficient. So after opening up some uh, access into the preserve, we were able to use the, uh, the big, uh, big brush trucks with the hydraulic claw. So that made our progress go a lot faster. And we could, well, I mean, one truck could take, what, seven tons of brush at a time? Or several thousand pounds anyway. So it's it's been a tough battle. And it will go on. Uh, 
probably forever because there are invasive species just waiting to, to come into Blund. The thing that's different about Blund from most other nature preserves, it was not pristine land when the city bought it. It had been a dairy farm. And there was no... There was no, uh, uh, there was nothing to outcompete the invasive ligustrum trees. So they would grow geometrically. One tree turns into 20, 20 trees turns into 400, 400 turns into 65,000. And before you know it, you've got a tree on every square yard. And that's not an exaggeration. In some places, a tree every square inch. So, uh, that's not the case of places like uh, Barton Creek and uh, Bull Creek, where you have 50 and 100 year old live oaks and junipers that are tall enough to still get sunlight when the uh, ligustrums start growing. That wasn't the case of Blunt. That's why it's been such a tough battle. Yeah, David, so from your perspective, um, you know, what has your involvement looked like over the years? Um, it seems like, you know, you guys really work in tandem, but also kind of divide and conquer. Um, just kind of curious from your perspective. Um, let me share my screen, if you don't mind, because I think that I want to introduce everybody to somebody who's important to to me and to Jerry and to this whole effort. So uh, a, little, a little Zoom magic. Let's see if we can do this. Okay, can you all see this fellow? Yes. Yeah. So this is Rene Barrera. And Rene uh, was my neighbor and a friend, and he was head of a, a little nonprofit space, probably not really that formal. It's just a neighborhood association called the South River City Citizens Neighborhood Association. And, and uh, it turns out that... Um, uh, our neighborhood is roughly um, encompassed by the same area that's the Blonde watershed. And so uh, Rene was, was such a, a ringleader in trying to um, introduce our whole neighborhood to uh, the fact that Blonde Creek and a string of parks that included Blonde Preserve and Stacy Park Stacy Greenbelt, Little Stacy Pool, Big Stacy Pool, were all part of this same ecosystem. And so when we would have neighborhood meetings, he would talk it up. And um, I think I started um, maybe in 2003 or 2004 with Renee. Um, I was the, and still am, can't seem to get out of it, the Parks and Environment Chair for um, SRCC. And so I would come along um, at Renee's beck and call uh, to, you know, step and fetch it. Uh, what could I do to help? And my daughters came along and our neighbors came along and friends. And, and uh, we started with invasive removal in Little Stacy area. And then, um, you know, later on, we uh, grouped up with, with Jerry, who was really a uh, a stalwart, a professional ligustrum liquidator. And so uh, 
we've sort of been there in the wings to try to support what he's doing um, day in and day out. And um, SRCC, I think, gets a, a lot of bang from this. Um, one is that, you know, we're a community group. And so it gives us a chance to, through the work in Blonde Preserve and earlier through Stacy Park's work, uh, meet one another and and sort of join forces and and uh, and not only with ourselves but also with people who are um, visitors to the neighborhood who might be parishioners in a church or um, uh, might be students in a school or who might be employees in a, a, a firm who come to work at Blonde and so we get to meet them and and do something together that's really positive. Um, and then there's also just this sort of environmental education aspect to it that not only are we residents, but we're citizens of the bigger world. And I think that Blunt has been this incredible sort of teaching platform to try to learn about um, the natural world, whether it's about water quality and Blunt Creek, or about the problems with invasive species. Uh, you know, Ligustrum that, that Jerry mentioned and that is a big part of his life for sure, uh, but also paper mulberry and Nandina and uh, China berry. I mean, you name it, Blunt has got it. So it's that's been a wonderful environmental uh, lesson. Um, I guess the last thing is just that it's, the neighborhood is raised money and, uh, you know, of course, a lot of this is really Jerry's time and, and Parks and Recreation's uh, dedication and Austin Parks Foundation's contribution. But the neighborhood has found that this is a way that that a lot of the residents here can give back. And so we've raised, you know, a number of thousands of dollars to raise money to, to hire groups like Plateau uh, habitat management who come in and do some of the, you know, the herbicide work or the chipping work that, that we as volunteers really can't do. So those are some of the aspects, you know, from community building to environmental education to um, some sort of reinvestment in the neighborhood that, that um, Blunt has been a really important thing for our neighborhood. So back to you, Barry. That's really great, David. Um, I'm glad you brought up the kind of education piece. I think probably a lot of people who are, who are going to be watching this are other dedicated volunteers who are doing similar things at their parks and have been for a long time. But I think there's probably, I'm hoping another audience, a broader audience of folks who um, maybe have just dipped their toes in the water or you know, aren't as well versed in um, Austin's ecosystems from a, a native and an invasive uh, perspective. So just real quick, just um, to kind of paint, you know, uh, the context of what we're working with. Would either of y'all mind just just real briefly talking a little bit about, um, you know, the problem of invasives and, and you know maybe the the effect on one specifically, but the watershed, like you mentioned, what what you alluded to, David, of the larger. And I think we'll kind of touch on this later too. But just um, you know, what is the worst outcome of doing nothing at one? I guess. Jerry? Uh, in a word, monoculture. So that means one species taking over and crowding out everything else. Like, 
like the difference between a Christmas tree farm and a natural forest. That's the difference between a monoculture and a central Texas wildscape. Parts of Blunn, acres and acres of Blunn, were well over 50%, over 80% ligustrum. And the thing about ligustrum specifically, it never drops its leaves summer or winter. So nothing is going to grow on the ground under a canopy of ligustrum trees. So that means there's no shelter for squirrels, uh, raccoons, snakes. You might like them, you might not, but they're all part of central Texas nature and they can't thrive in an environment of uh, monoculture. So that's the specific problem with ligustrum chinaberry. Not a bad looking tree. It does drop its leaves in the winter, but they are so prolific. They will take over and crowd out everything else in, in, in the preserve. So you might wonder, well, why hasn't everything in Austin been overtaken like that? And as I said earlier, most preserves have uh, an inventory of big, old, tall trees. Blum didn't. That's, that's the big difference. Do you know what year? Um, it was lit most recently a dairy farm by chance or generally? I'm going to guess it was in the, the mid fifties because most of the, the, most of that neighborhood grew up in, in the late fifties. Yeah. And so that's the best guess I can come up with. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Um, Patrick, is it true that there's a drunk tank for birds that uh, eat too many ligustrum berries and get tipsy? I, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's true with ligustrum berries in particular, but they definitely, uh, feed on them like crazy. You'll see huge flocks of, um, cedar waxwings up there eating them. Uh, there's a, a lot of different birds that will eat those, uh, berries. And that's a major source for how they, how it spreads. Uh, so it's not even necessarily if you can stop, um, you know, you know, Augustrum don't know, don't, doesn't know any boundaries. So the birds, even if you get them all gone from Blunt in particular, eventually more birds will come with them. Uh, the seeds spread through riparian zones, which again is prime function of, uh, or prime, uh, attribute of Blunt itself. Uh, so it is kind of never ending work, uh, when those species have already now exist in the ecosystem around Austin. So. Yeah, it's a major spire. Just you know what? Excuse me. I, I was just thinking that that um, there's some pretty, for me at least, unexpected consequences of of this kind of monoculture, particularly with dust from. And like Jerry was pointing out, because they're evergreen, um, very little grows underneath it. So when when these dustrum are pulled out, it's like a a parking lot. I mean, it's just absolutely bare. And, and as a consequence, there's, um, there's a real risk for erosion and then you get nonpoint runoff and then you have water quality problems. And then maybe you have fish dieouts in the creek. You know, it's, it's just kind of weird. Um, but, but nevertheless, very, um, significant problem that starts with this. Asiatic tree that, by the way, they're still selling at Humpville. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really multifaceted problem. That's what um, I was going to touch on this later. But so cool to see 
um, see y'all, especially, you know, non, non-experts necessarily being able to, to have a big impact. And despite, you know, the challenges like birds eating and pooping seeds all over, all over Austin. Um, yeah, it's really cool. Well, uh, James, I, I want to switch to you now, and I'm wondering if you could touch on uh, just the um, ha- how AFD fits into this picture at Blunt and um, kind of what's, what's been your work there and your approach to work in Parkland and, and Austin in general. Um, I've been with AFD uh, for not a terribly long amount of time. Uh, which kind of answers your other question. Before that, I actually worked in conservation. Um, actually worked pretty close with Patrick whenever I worked with uh, American Youth Works uh, Texas Conservation Corps. So uh, that's where a bit of my background is uh, as far as that stuff. Uh, David, do you mind if I wrestle the uh, share screen from you? Take it away. Thank you. And I can't. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. All right. Sweet. Um, a little bit to your other questions, Barry. Um, our work specifically as related to Blend Creek um, was to install some shaded fuel breaks. And I'll go into what those are in a minute. But uh, the work that the fire department is doing is our mission is to um, manage wildfire and protect the areas around. So in this purple area, you can see all the structures that are directly uh, near Blood Creek and could be impacted immediately by a wildfire. Green grayed out area, that is the area that's owned as preserved land. Uh, And then this little yellow overlay on top, uh, this is the area that we actually went through and worked on. Um, And we did that back in August of 2016. So it's been a little while since we've done any work in this area. Uh, And as I'm sure Jerry and Todd can attest to it, it's become overgrown in those areas pretty intensely, uh, especially with invasive species. So um, in relation to wildfire, uh, this is such a lush area. uh, And if you were to walk through it right now, you would be hard to imagine a wildfire ripping through there because it is so lush. When that happens, uh, lots of things grow, adding more fuel to the fire. That's how we generally describe anything combustible. We'll describe it as fuel. And a little bit more to that is uh, the shaded fuel break that I was talking about. Uh, and I tried to like borrow the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, but it's just good, bad, getting bad, and dangerous. And in the good section, what we'll try to go through and do is just take chainsaws, go through and cut the understory. Uh, and leave an area of shaded uh, growth. So it does kind of what Jerry was talking about a little bit, where the ligostrum, because it doesn't 
drop its leaves, it keeps that understory suppressed. So in the event of a wildfire, if a fire is burning, it keeps pretty low to the ground. If it keeps low to the ground, then the fire stays cool, which cool in terms of fire is kind of a strange analogy. But whenever it starts climbing into the canopy in the uh, mid-story, that's when it's able to actually build up a lot more heat and become a danger to the areas around it and burn down the preserve uh, as a whole. So in this area, if a fire were to go through the good, where it's showing right there, it'll just kind of smolder on the ground. Um, it's easy to put out, which isn't necessarily what we, what I would like to see happen to a preserve like this. Fire in this area is a natural occurrence. Uh, it's really good for that environment. It takes out invasives because uh, most of those are not adapted to our environment, whereas the ash junipers, the big live oaks, are very, very resilient to fire, um, unless they're diseased, in which case a fire will actually take those trees out as well, improving the forest health of that preserve. So in that sense, a uh, prescribed fire that were to be lit off in Blunt would improve the health of the forest itself. Um, it starts to get dangerous when you get into the getting bad uh, down in the bottom area. You can see we have some air things that we refer to as ladder fuels. So whenever that fire that is up here in the good area burns along the ground, just kind of continues and moves along the surface, stays cool, doesn't necessarily get up in the canopy and cause lots of problems. Here where there's like some mid-story that's going on, you can see how if we're burning along the ground, we could start climbing into the trees, getting up into the upper canopy. And that's not necessarily how our native trees were adapted to handle a fire. Uh, if it burns along their trunks, it's kind of like holding a uh, cigarette lighter to a giant log for a campfire. If you've ever tried to do that, it's really ineffective. You had to burn your finger rather than a log. Um, but if you have lots of kindling and paper in a fire, then it can actually build up enough heat to engulf a larger log and make a nice campfire or a really bad forest fire. So when you're in the bad here, you can see how it's really choked with things. Uh, and this, these pictures were actually taken in April. Uh, all these pictures were taken in April. So this is just in various spots in blood. This is blood. Uh, and then you get down to the dangerous area where it's it was April, it's still fairly wet, so you can see a lot of greenery in the background. If you imagine this, um, Texas has an all-year fire season. Um, some of our most dangerous times are actually in January, which is some mental gymnastics that takes place there. But it's just dry. When things dry out, like this dead and down in the dangerous area, when it's dry, then it becomes a much larger fire danger. So um, going to go back to here. So whenever we cut in a shaded fuel break in these yellow lines, um, we're not trying to go through and just clean the entire forest. Uh, this is a line of defense for the neighborhood around. And what we would do in these shaded fuel breaks is that we take it up to that area and then it's kind of we let the rest of the preserve exist how it does. 
Um, so there's not a lot of invasive removal that we do in terms of mechanical treatment. So when we cut the chin field breaks, we go with chainsaws and a chipper and a big brush truck and just haul all that material out. Um, the hope that I have is that you have a very good natural barrier um, with the creek in there, but also there's some man-made barriers, not just with the shaded fuel breaks, but these roads that run along here. Um, my hope is that eventually at some point uh, we will be able to have a prescribed fire uh, plan in this area that's still in development. That's not something that exists currently. Um, and then that would take care of hopefully a lot of the invasive species and maintain this area as a much more fire safe um, area. I got really long-winded with that, Barry. I hope that answered your questions. No, that's great, James. That's great. Um, and you know, something that ha has been alluded to already, and I think you know, something that I was able to participate in is half the battle is getting the ligustrum or or whatever invasive tree, you know derooted off the ground whatever then there's a whole other thing of getting it out of the preserve as a big old pile of brush presents a real fire hazard to the preserve and um we were able to do a project with um with patrick and the rangers with um inoculating some of the the down trees with mycelium to help it um biodegrade and not sit there as a big fuel potential but i was wondering i mean I think probably any one of y'all could answer this question, but you know, it seems like volunteer, you're talking many hands being able, unless without bringing in giant equipment, um, the benefit of volunteers and, and you know, just, just the many hands concept of mitigating fire risk once you're pulling those invasives out. Any one of y'all want to touch on that? I could hit it for a second, uh, especially because I uh, did so much work of that with uh, not just a, uh, Park volunteers, but AmeriCorps volunteers, um, a lot of the maintenance for those shaded fuel breaks uh, extends to the preserve as well. But it's really easy to go in with a handsaw. You don't need giant chainsaws and heavy equipment to do the maintenance on those areas. So, Ligustrum, obviously, uh, you know, you need to cut it and then add whatever it is to break down those fuel piles. Um, but just beating it back is a huge, huge help to fire safety as well as reducing its, you know, ability to spread. So my two cents. That's good. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead, David. Well, I just wanted to share, share my screen again. Can I snatch it back from James? Snatch yeah, away. all yours. All right, here we go. So th this is just an example of some of the people that Jerry has led over the past umpteen years. And, and I think that um, it's incredible the number of people who've gone through there to do this kind of maintenance and, and also really the, the long-term improvement of the preserve by weed wrenching and hacking and sawing and chopping and and then lots of, of sort of Sherpa work, you know, where it, all this kind of brush and slash needs to be moved from uh, where it's cut 
to either a place where it can be chipped or taken to Hornsby Bend. And, and it's just a huge amount of hands-on labor. And, and I think that Sherry would join me and Patrick um, in just big thanks to the hundreds and hundreds of people who've come through Fun Preserve and have made this possible with, with Jerry's um, leadership. So just wanted to add that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the type of management that we wanted to do out in that particular preserve, it just simply isn't really feasible in that preserve uh, without the enormous amount of support that these hundreds and probably thousands of volunteers who dedicate their time to do this type of work. Because there's kind of multiple different ways of going about trying to remove the amount of invasives that are at a place like Blunt or what it looked like 10 plus years ago. And, you know, you could think of it from a perspective of, well, how do we contract this out? Uh, how do we do this kind of real quick? Uh, and that involves things that aren't just not really feasible, given the terrain, given the proximity to homes, given the size of the preserve, given the whole number of things. And so really the only feasible way of going about it is simply doing it kind of small scale and doing it by hand. Because uh, if you think about trying to bring heavy machinery in there to try to uh, really pull, you know, do a lot of the, say, tree shearing or forestry mulching or any number of other different things, you're going to create more negative impacts along the way uh, just trying to do that work. And then you're basically almost kind of left with what the, what the preserve looked like right after being a dairy farm. You know, it's a blank slate ready for opportunistic species to just take its space. And you also now have a massive seed bank uh, of all the Ligostrums and Mandina and Chinaberry that left their seed over these, you know, decades as well. Uh, so it's not only that initial effort too, but then the fact that it's always an ongoing process, restoration never ends. Uh, so the real hope is to kind of try to build in that sustainability, build in that resiliency. Uh, and by doing it slowly with a lot of manpower, constantly month after month after month, uh, with that just ongoing dedication from volunteers, and it, that's the only way to keep up with it and to get to a place where you think you can be resilient and can be sustainable and then have the added manpower to just kind of keep that nudging in the correct direction. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, and something I'd say Austin Parks Foundation is, is very much about, you know, it's like not particularly glamorous work dragging the, the Sherpa work, as David mentioned it, you know, hauling branches from one side of a park to the other. Um, but people do it. People sign up to do it. And it's not because it's glamorous, but it's because it's part of a bigger vision and bigger mission. And, um, and it really does take, you know, even if someone just shows up one time, you're still a part of the, the larger work there, um, which is cool. Which leads me can to... I, can I put a plug in here? Sure. Um, you know, these people don't just appear out of the woodwork. Um, they, sure. they, um, they come because Austin Parks Foundation has been a huge help, big friend and partner in recruiting these people and making it fun and making it easy 
to come to Blunt or come to other preserves and parks for that matter. But um, we are very grateful. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. You're very welcome. It's a it's a cool symbiotic relationship for sure. We're excited to be a part of it. I have a, a, a photo I'd like to put up here. I'm going to grab the share screen button, if that's okay. Uh, someone else is sharing. I think, yeah, David. You know oh, David? Yeah. Hold on a second. Gosh. Everybody's getting there. Wrestling in with David today. There we go. All right. Take it away. Thanks for your patience. Share screen. And... Okay. Can you, can you see that? No, not yet. Uh, how do I how do I get this? All right, uh, I will I will I will think this through. I've got I've got a a, a photo here on my screen. I'm seeing it. How do I how do I get? Uh, you see at the bottom of your screen, there's some, there's like five buttons. One is share screen. Share screen, right. right. If right. you click on that, it should bring up what's on your screen. So I have two monitors here in front of me connected to one video card. So maybe it's getting confused. Okay. Uh, I will describe. Oh, pantomime. I love that. <laughs> what, I'm look, what I'm looking at here is a photo uh, in the foreground is a bunch of stumps three feet tall of ligustrum trees. There's probably 50 stumps in the foreground. And in the background is thousands of more ligustrum trees waiting to be cut. And when you look in the foreground where you can see to the ground, you can see there's nothing growing there. We could not have done this kind of work without thousands of volunteers because cutting these trees and leaving them on the ground to become a fire hazard would not be acceptable to James Duff and the neighbors or anybody else. All this stuff had to go to Hornsby Bend. So APF, thanks for supplying all the volunteers. Yeah, that was way better than looking at the picture. Thanks, Jerry. I'll take a thousand Jerry words any day. Um, well, Patrick, that, that leads me to a next question about, you know, um, it's amazing how much renated was so little, but now as y'all move forward and, um, there are some added resources and potentially a, a more kind of strategic plan from a, from a citywide perspective, I'm just wondering, um, how volunteers fit into that picture moving forward at Blunt and everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's still, you know, so basically, just to kind of yeah zoom out a little bit, just kind of what those changes are. Uh, over the last year, or not even a year, uh, it's only been you know eight months or so. Uh, an entire new set of positions has been created, uh, and they've really uh, just the amount of resources as well is just expanding. And so there's now an entire land management team in place, and that is headed up by. Uh, Matt McCaw, who brings a long, long time worth of experience of doing this exact type of work on uh, very big acreage. Uh, so he uh, had worked with Austin Water and did a lot of the water quality lands. And so a lot of the time, same type of stuff uh, that he did there is uh, going to be able to be done parks wide 
uh, here. So I think really the idea is to take those same type of goals, but just expand it to a larger acreage and to um, just see what can be done to, again, yeah, just the main goal is really to see what you could do to build resiliency and sustainability into all these natural systems and then see what kind of ecosystem services you can get out of that. So what the payback on that is, is it increases water quality, it increases the amount of available habitat, uh, it increases places for people to visit, to be able to, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of different story uh, studies that have been done about the effects of people going out into natural places and what the impact that has on their own mental being and things of that nature. So uh, really, I think it's just a matter of that things are going to hopefully be able to expand quite a bit. And uh, volunteers are definitely going to be a core component of that. Another part of that land management team uh, is uh, the Wildlife Austin program, which is headed up by Lawan Tucker. And through that, a lot of coordination is going to happen uh, for volunteers. So it's going to give an avenue for people to uh, come out, be part of their community, uh, take ownership of their parks, and to be able to do all these different, implement all of those different land management plans that are being thought through. Um, so I think it's it's incredibly exciting what's happening right now. And really, it's kind of deep in the planning process and the land management plan process and trying to get that overall um, overall vision so that we can have comprehensive plans and then it's up to volunteers and some of it will be probably contract work some of its partnerships through afd and others gxcc any number of other different uh groups to help just enact those plans so um yeah it's kind of a really exciting time where uh the resources that renee had been trying to group together for years uh really was coming together uh, even under him, and it's uh, it's continued even more so uh, since. So it's it's exciting. It's really cool. When you talk about resiliency and sustainability, is there a point where you know this may be an unanswerable question, but like zero intervention would be needed? I mean, is there is there a place a time when Blunt needs no volunteers? Uh, I don't think so, uh, because I think really there's. That's the main opportunities. Uh, so not only having volunteers come out and do the work, there's an opportunity in that. Uh, that's something the Parks and Recreation Department, you know, we get benefits for. That's, you know, basically free labor. But at the same time, it's also an incredibly important opportunity to let those volunteers know why we're doing that work or how is how does that impact the surrounding neighborhoods or how you know, what's the reasoning behind this and have an educational component to it. And then maybe they can, um, you know, learn to appreciate what's there more. I know I personally have. I mean, when I first came to Austin 15 plus years ago, uh, I probably couldn't even tell you what Augustrum was. Mm -hmm. And walking through green belts or other areas, I always thought of them as, you know, oh, this is beautiful. This is outdoors. This is nice. But over 15 plus years now, I've you know, interacted with tons of land managers, been more heavily involved in this type of work as a job and also doing volunteer work on my own time. And now as I walk through Greenbelts, I see a whole different world. Uh, I see not only the Ligostrum, but also all the other 
components to that. And it kind of opened my eyes to knowing how it's working as an incredibly complex system. Uh, so I think that's the benefit of using the volunteers as well. We get something out of it, but the volunteers hopefully take away an appreciation for that land. Uh, they take away some education, uh, learn more about it. So that's always going to be a core component of any type of work we do with Parks and Recreation Department. Yeah, that's really cool. I've had a similar experience and it's fun to see people have those experiences out there. Um, James, uh, I'm wondering, you know, this, I have kind of a two part bigger picture question. Um, as we, you know, the fires that are, are raging through the, the West and Northwest right now, it's on everybody's mind. And um, luckily, you know, that hasn't, hasn't typically been an issue here in Austin, but I, I'm just wondering about, um, you kind of touched on it, but the, uh, the importance of the work y'all do from more of like a big picture kind of, you know, global scale. And, and then, and then, so this is uh, a tough question to answer, but then also kind of hyper, um, hyper local work with some neighborhoods around town. Cause you guys work not only in Blum, but other, other parks as well. So, um, you know, from like a community standpoint, socially, environmentally, and from a world, you know, kind of how, how that all ties together. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll follow your lead. Uh, big picture scale. Um, Austin, the United States, and the rest of the world um, had a very kind of Western mindset to fire. So uh, it's talked about as the past hundred years, uh, there was the 10 a.m. rule that any fire that started in public lands uh, federally was supposed to be extinguished by 10 a.m. the next day. And that was the goal. So just every single fire was supposed to be put out. And that was the, the gold standard to protecting people from the dangers of wildfire. That uh, not exaggeration has blown up in our face. Uh, you could tell very, very, uh, extremely in California currently in Oregon, uh, just the West Coast right now is uh, struggling and has been for a while. The internationally, even uh, with the fires that happened last year in Australia, they were incredibly devastating. Um, on the silver lining to that is they have an environment that's very similar to ours, a little bit drier, but they're techniques for mitigation of large green spaces that are creeping into the areas that are. <laughs> Jerry, I got your screen now. Um, oh, yeah, I was playing around with it and I'm trying to, trying to get back. Oh, what have I done? <laughs> I like it. Yeah. yeah. It's good. So, yeah, I'll actually use this. So this giant expanse right there, um, if you're imagining, most people, when they think about a wildfire, they see uh, that area and then superimpose their imagination as a huge fire front coming at them. And this level of overgrowth uh, is what happens whenever you suppress fires for a long amount of time and don't allow it to engaged naturally in the area. I was talking about Australia a little bit. 
and they're, they have shaded fuel breaks there. Um, doesn't work as well in California uh, and other areas that are just big pine tree uh, plantations. It's, they have a different model and control method than the shaded fuel break that we're using here, but Australia used it and it was really effective. So that's my little tag for the shaded fuel breaks that we're talking about. But um, in terms of like all the invasives that grow up in those areas, um, wildfires that go through can suppress those. Hey, I'm back. Uh, and maintain a forest ecosystem health. The fire is a natural occurrence in Texas and specifically central Texas. You know, it's been a while since we had uh, a big one in Austin, um, but most people in Austin are at least somewhat familiar with the large Bastrop fire. Um, hopefully if you came after, I think the last time Bastrop burned was 2014, 2015. Um, but if you hopefully have had a chance to go out to the state park and wander around on the lost pines trails, uh, it's still full of matchsticks. They're just big, tall pine trees that are just blackened. Uh, and in 27, 2011, sorry, 2011, whenever the Bastrock complex fire happened, that was coincided with the Labor Day fires in Austin. And if you haven't been in Austin since 2011, that might not be a date that rings to the top of your head. But for a lot of the homeowners, especially on the west side of town, um, they're familiar with that date. And specifically to Austin, what happened was that coincided with the Bastrop Complex fire, which at the time was the hottest fire on record nationally. Um, we had that title and then California took it over because California burns. Uh, what happened was so many resources were deployed to that massive, massive forest fire in Bastrop. Um, and then because it was such an intensely dry uh, drought had cured everything around the area for a while. And the there were just numerous small fires that started in and around the Austin area. Because everyone was deployed to the Bastrop fire, that meant that the wildfire division and Austin Fire Department in general was spread super thin. So those fires ended up becoming much more destructive than they needed to be because of those green spaces that hadn't been maintained where fires had been suppressed. And additionally, a lot of homeowners in Austin uh, weren't really incredibly concerned about wildfire. Uh, it, the lessons we learned from then was that if you can protect your own home and make that more fire resilient, that allows those green spaces to not be such an immense threat that you need to put out every single spark that starts. That if we're able to go through, and the Wildflower Center does an amazing job of this, just constantly burning uh, that area so that improves forest health, improves the ground cover. Um, wildfires, if they're kept at a low temperature, just burning through an area, it doesn't actually kill the seed bank. So uh, if they're hot enough, it will burn off a seed bank. We'll see that in California where it just scorches the ground underneath and kills off that living material. But if it stays smoldering on the surface, uh, it leaves that deep seed bank. Um, and in the case of what Jerry and David, I know this for sure, but assuming that those 
like China Berry and Ligustrum seed banks, those are very near to the surface. And Juan Creek is an exception because it used to be a dairy farm. Um, but elsewhere, um, having a fire roll through there, uh, it takes care of invasives, it takes care of saplings. So there's not as much competition uh, fighting the, the middle-aged trees. Uh, the forest is able to just continue to spread out, creating that shaded canopy. Uh, and in terms of things like oak wilt, which I'm sure most people are familiar with, uh, whenever trees do become diseased, if a fire is able to roll through an area, it does a good job of being an immune system to a forest where it takes out, you know, sickly and dying species so that the healthy ones are able to survive. Uh, Patrick, you might disagree with me on that one because that was shooting from the hip a little bit there. But no, that's great stuff. I agree. Yeah, it's it's gotten in more enormous amounts of impact. And, uh, you know, on some of our other preserves that are a little bit larger and a little bit further from town and there's less uh, logistics to it, we do implement a lot of prescribed fire uh, through the help of AFD and other partners and whatnot. So, uh, honestly, the types of restoration that you theoretically want to try to accomplish without fire as a component of that because of the fact that it was a key component of our ecosystem here uh it's not really realistic without it so uh it has huge benefits um i know yeah there's just lots of seeds that simply won't even germinate without fire passing over them in some areas california has a couple of those species uh so yeah i think there's a lot of great books on on that too just i don't know impacts of fire and wildfire management over the last 100 years versus the last maybe 10, 15. It's been very different. Yeah, I guess I should say that it's not necessarily a magic bullet for taking care of invasives, especially in an area like Glen. Um, fire obviously causes smoke, um, which you know can impact public health uh, and public safety. Uh, you can't smoke out the road because then people might crash their cars. You don't necessarily want to completely smoke out your neighbors uh, if they have asthma or other uh, respiratory um, difficulties. That smoke can be really, really damaging. Um, and just if you light a fire in a forest and don't tell anybody, it usually tends to freak people out. So um, it's a good learning moment too, though, when we do have those different fires for folks to see how that can be controlled in such a way. Uh, it's amazing. It's really interesting to see it used as a tool. Uh, how yeah, demystifying it can be, how um, how controlled it can be, even though sometimes when you think it's controlled, it's not always. But um, yeah, it's, it's amazing stuff. Yeah, uh, Austin Fire Department is actually pretty strict on their uh, controlled burns as opposed to just some of the areas. The, the amount of resources that need to be mustered in um, the city of Austin to do a controlled burn are, um, they're pretty strict. They're pretty, they're tough um, for that public safety. Um, and I'm getting into the weeds, I'll be as brief as possible. But in regards to that, uh, most other areas, whenever a controlled burn goes into an uncontrolled burn, they usually will call up resources to come to that area to then change it over into a wildfire. Um, Austin Fire Department dictates that those resources be on scene, on standby, 
in case of the, you know, unlikely but uh, potential uh, danger of having what they refer to as a conversion whenever it goes from a prescribed fire into a wildfire. There, I think I went over your question again. Good, <laughs> it's all good stuff, um, and it's particularly relevant right now. Um, David, I have a question for you. Uh, you mentioned the kind of adjacent parks of Big Stacy and Little Stacy and the, the um, Greenbelt that runs between. I'm just thinking from a volunteer's perspective that would be hearing all this. Um, you know, if, if you go to, you went to Blunt 15, 10 years ago, the, the, challenge, the problem would be very obvious. But let's say you're at one of these more traditional parks, you know, where you're talking playscapes and basketball courts and things like that. Um, maybe a little less obvious about what's really needed and or what impact volunteers could have. Um, and so I did, and you know, this could be for Jerry too, but um, from like a neighborhood standpoint for those neighborhood parks and smaller parks and, um, you know, something that doesn't have a sea of legustrum, um, you know, what, what, what can the impact of volunteers be on a place like that? Um, sure. Um, I think that there are a lot of projects we can do, you know, in, in Little Stacy Park, we had something called Kaboom, which was a fundraiser that we did with Home Depot to improve the playscape there. Um, we also got some um, a group of people together to recognize a broadcaster who used to work at KUT named Larry Monroe. And so now there's the Larry Monroe Bridge. It's all decorated um, through the contributions of scores of people. Um, more recently, I think we, we uh, persuaded the city to take out a road which used to wrap around Little Stacy. It's now becoming a path. So those are all things that SRCC and you know a lot of our friends in the neighborhood have been able to do. But I I like to introduce a a uh, a phrase that a friend told me about, which is more about just enjoying being outside. And you know we use these kind of neighborhood projects as a reason to to be outside and enjoy uh, Mother Nature. And here's the term, and it's it's free to be used. You've heard of sunbathing. How about forest bathing? Forest bathing. Just try that one on. I, I because I was always struck when you know Jerry was is superhuman, and so he doesn't mind being out there in July and acting away. But what's so weird is that we can get like you know 30, 40 people out there, and it's hot and it's buggy and people are dirty, but they're smiling. They're really enjoying it. And, and so I think that these, these park activities are great for getting things done, but they're really just, they're really fun. And it's a nice way to see your friends and to have a good time. So remember, forest bathing. Yeah, I think there's a Japanese forest bathing is like a wilderness medi meditation. Oh, yeah. it's a real thing. And make it up. Yeah. We're going to Texas branded, Texas forest bathing. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, y'all, um, I think we are uh, nearing the end of our time, but I'd like to kind of give you guys just one more chance. Um, 
then we, we talked, we touched on a lot of really great stuff today. I really, I just, you know, the whole reason why we wanted to do this was because one was just this great example of partnering between different entities and organizations, long-term impact. And, and it's, it's a really just a cool model. Um, and something that I, everyone would want to see some form or fashion in, in, you know, their park or their preserve, their natural space. And so moving forward, um, as we seek to, you know, continue to make Austin a more socially equitable city, we seek to, um, you know, mitigate climate change. And, you know, there's a lot going on. Parks have a lot to do with a lot of multifaceted issues. Um, I'd just be curious from, from y'all's perspective, just, just real quick, um, you know, what, what you see moving forward as um, volunteers and private and public entities can, can collaborate to, to create change. Um, any last thoughts? Can I throw something out there? Sure can, yeah. Um, you know, when you go to the amusement park and, and you, you can't be shorter than this and you can't be taller than that, you got to be in that sort of magic window of size to, to take the rides. The really cool thing about working in the preserves is that you can be 80, you can be eight months. And I, I just remembering, I'm seeing Patrick there in my Hollywood squares, all arranging the windows here. And, and he brought his little boy out there who just seemed like he was grooving. He was having such a good time. And then um, Jerry and I, you know, are out there in our middle years. And then there are people who are much older than us. And so I think that in terms of finding something that we can all do together and sort of um, bridge some of these divides, I think that, that parks are one of the best places to do it. Well, yeah, I agree. One of our, uh, you know, the Parks and Recreation Department, one of the key components is we create community. And I can't think of any better way of doing it than through volunteerism and just becoming a part of the community of your park. Uh, and there's just so many different ways of doing that and on different timescales. So like you've got folks like Jerry and David and everybody else that spend nearly daily out there or, you know, are constantly helping or impacting. And, but then you also have folks that might just simply being in the park itself and enjoying it for what it is, is a huge component of it or meeting up with their neighbors and friends and family in the parks. Uh, that too is a huge component of creating that community. So um, coming out for volunteer days is a fantastic way of just, regardless of how dirty you want to get or how much into the weeds you want to get with it, you still have that great opportunity of just hanging out with your neighbors in a shared space uh, that I think is just invaluable. Yeah, um, I think that especially because you know we're doing this because of COVID and uh, the very well documented effects that green space can have on physical and mental health are really important and getting volunteers out into places like Blunt uh, that are public lands so they can take ownership of it uh, because it's you know belongs to everyone including uh, the people that are watching this that are thinking about volunteering there that's uh, it's giving back, but you know, you take a little bit for yourself as well. Said, Jerry, any last 
words. Um, I wish we had more opportunities for volunteers to come out and, and get dirty with us. Uh, maybe someday we'll get back to that. Yeah, we will. We will. Um, and I, I should I don't say, want yeah, fine, that's right. Um, if you are interested in getting involved, make sure that you're going through the proper channels, that you're not out there just hacking down the gust drums by yourself. Um, all these things that we've been talking about are approved by our partners at Parks and Rec, and we want to make sure because they are public lands and they are for everyone that you know we're doing what's um, what is not just one person's opinion. So we offer a lot of those opportunities and they're all vetted through PARD and um, several other organizations do as well. So there's lots of ways to get involved. Right now we're just dipping our toes back in the water, but assuming that cases continue to decline, we're hoping to be able to get more and more people out there. Someday when the world returns to normal, we'll be out there in full force, Jerry, I promise. <laughs> all right, thank you guys so much. It's great. Thank um, you. Real quick, um, I just want to say thank you to everyone. Um, this has been a really, really fun session to sit in on, and I'm always amazed by how much um, I learn from um, folks at the city, from um, community folks who are out there doing the work, um, learning all the time. And um, uh, like you all said, I think because of COVID, um, everyone's got a little bit of a new appreciation for the outdoors and the benefits it brings. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID, there's also been a lot of negative impacts, um, more waste. Um, and so we are going to need volunteers more than ever. And we're really excited to, to get back into it slowly, safely, lots of safety measures um, put in place. But that's that's our goal is to get back to, to where, we, where we were. And we can't do it without um, a whole team of people. Um, it's really been very cool over the last few years that I've been with Austin Parks Foundation just to see how much collaboration and coordination there is at every single level. So, you know, we, um, Barry and I have organized several, it's my park days now, and to see the dedication level of the volunteers who lead projects year after year. And then the huge team of folks from Watershed, um, PARD, PARD Urban Forestry, who review the projects and make sure that they align with, um, with the city standards, with other plans. Um, and then, you know, um, we also meet with other uh, partner organizations that do volunteer projects on parkland. Um, and so there's a lot of conversation, a lot of collaboration, a lot of, um, you know, sharing of resources and ideas. And we just keep trying to improve those processes um, every year. So um, we can't do it without everyone that's on this call and um, all the folks that we have out at parks across Austin. Um, if to uh, again, I want to thank everyone for being patient with the technical difficulties this morning. Um, we'll uh, have this up online soon, and um, and we also have other sessions. Um, all of our previous sessions are on AustinParks.org/parks-summit. Um, that's where um, everything is, and then um, hopefully next time we'll have things go live as intended. Um, thank you all again. And we'll see you out in the park soon. Thank you. Thanks. Season one of the Austin Parks cast is available now on your favorite podcast platforms. Do you have a question or topic you'd like us to talk about? You can leave us a voice message on our Anchor FM webpage at anchor.fm 
backslash Austin Parkscast. We might even play your message on the show. A friendly reminder that you can find all of 2020's Park Summit sessions at austinparks.org backslash summit. Season two will kick off in a few weeks, so keep an eye out on Austin Parks Foundation's social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a follow if you haven't already. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. We want to say a special thanks to our year-round sponsors, ACL Music Festival, Wheatsville, Academy Sports and Outdoors, Austin Subaru, Cap Metro, Central National Bank, Cirrus Logic, Industry Print Shop, Northern Trust, Sage Creek Wealth of Raymond James, Siete Family Foods, Sunday, Tito's Handmade Vodka, and Zilker Brewing. Austin Parks Foundation is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving parks, trails, and green spaces across our beloved city. Our tagline is People Plus Parks. We aim to give every Austinite a park within a 10-minute walk, no matter what part of town they call home. Everyone deserves a great park in their neighborhood. The Austin Parks Cast is a production of Austin Parks Foundation. Find out more information about our Park Summit series and the work we do to improve parks for every Austinite at austinparks.org. <laughs>